stages. And those five stages basically um, break up the entire Bible in stages, all about the Messianic, co- I mean, about the Davidic covenant. Remember, we saw that the first stage, that the covenant was anticipated. We went all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we saw the promises that the Lord made to, to Abraham. And that was the start of it. That was an anticipation of the one that was to come. We didn't go there, but all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, the, the Lord made his first promise of a savior when he, when he, when he told that yeah. and he said that, that they were through the woman, the woman's, the woman's seed would, uh, from forth, would come forth. Uh, I would remind everybody to please uh, mute your microphone. I will tell you that when I hear something, it's uh, a little distracting. So please, please, if you haven't already, please uh, mute your microphone. Thank you. So again, um, the, the covenant anticipated. In, in Genesis particularly, but all through all the books of the Bible before Second Samuel, there is an anticipation of the covenant. Right? Now, we will see there's an anticipation of the Messiah as well. But first, we're looking at the covenant. So it's anticipated. Genesis 3. We, have, we didn't go there. We won't go there today. But again, that is where after the fall of man, the Lord said that through that, that the seed of the woman would strike with. I'm sorry, that the, that the serpent descendant would strike the heel of the son of the woman and then the son of woman would crush the head of the serpent and that's again a picture of the crucifixion of christ and the ultimate redemption and victory that the christ will have over the forces of evil so this covenant to david is anticipated remember the second stage is that it's established it's established and we saw that is again in second samuel 7 verses 12 to 16 is when the lord issues the promises to David. And then the last time we were together, we saw the third stage where the covenant is confirmed. In other words, it's, 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 a, it's brought up again for the people and, and recited again. The people reminded, remember when they were at their worst situations, the Lord would send a prophet, have a psalmist remind them of the greatness of the covenant and how it applied to them, how they would be that kingdom and that they would they would worship Uh, this king who would be seated in his throne in Jerusalem. So that, again, the the covenant is confirmed and expanded. We saw, for example, how as you go through the prophets and even the book of Psalms, we learn more things about this descendant of David, including the fact that he would be God as well as man. That's in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, um, also in in the prophet Isaiah and other places as well. So we saw that last time. Those first three stages, that's the Old Testament. Again, from Genesis all the way to Malachi. We could go to Malachi and see more um, of anticipation of the Messiah coming, of the covenant being confirmed and expanded. Then we get to the New Testament. This is where we'll be today. In the New Testament, documents the fact that the covenant is fulfilled. Now, there are two parts, remember. There's part one and part two. I just want to say that part one, as it were, is in the books. In other words, part one is now historic fact that the Messiah has arrived, but he's but he was rejected the first time. And and, and in terms of the king, that was something that really wasn't revealed directly in the Old Testament, that this king, this promised king would actually be rejected. The closest you got, you come are in the book of Isaiah, where he talks about the suffering servant dying for the sins of the world. And then in the book of Zechariah, 
we start to see the servant and the king come together. But it's not really to the new, until we get to the New Testament that we see in specific detail this historical event that the Messiah would come, would be presented to Israel, but ultimately be rejected and die on the cross. And, of course, be raised from the dead. This is where we are today. Now, this is in the New Testament. It's in the New Testament, in the Gospels particularly, where we see that the Messiah actually has arrived and is rejected. Next time we get together, we're going to finish this off. And we're going to finish it in the second stage, the fifth stage, which is the final fulfillment of everything, all the promises that were made to David. We're going to see that that still hasn't happened yet. And what we have in the New Testament is additional prophecy. See, we don't always think of the New Testament as being prophetic, but it certainly is. Jesus Christ was a prophet, and he talked about the fact that he would come back and establish his kingdom. So we're going to see that next week. In other words, this, this part two is not history yet. It hasn't happened yet. All right. So it, but what we do have in the, in the New Testament is prophecies about it. And again, in a lot of detail, once again, the prophecies surrounding what would happen just before the Messiah comes. The prophecies in the book of Revelation about the fact that he would have that final victory over all the forces of evil and that he would reign forever. So so that's all in the New Testament. It's, it's the fulfillment of this covenant that was first anticipated in Genesis, established in Second Samuel, confirmed throughout the Psalms and the prophets. Part one has already been fulfilled with the coming of the Messiah the first time. Part two is yet to be fulfilled, but is talked about also in the New Testament. These final two stages appear in the New Testament, and that's where we'll be for the remainder of this look at the, at the, at the Davidic covenant. All right, so let's review, though. Before we get started in the New Testament, there's one Old Testament passage that I'd like us to take a look at again. And I think most of you are already there. But it's again, it's Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. I'm not sure Zechariah realized this, but he actually, in his prophecy here, is going to talk about part one and part two. And so this is our springboard. This is in the Old Testament, but looking back at it now, knowing what we know, about what, what has already happened, it already occurred, we can also see, with the, with the, also with the eyes of the Spirit in our heart, we can now see clearly what Zechariah was talking about and, and how there's a, there is a great difference, a nine-day difference, if I can put it that way, between verse 9 and the very next verse, verse 10. Okay, let's read it together. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem, of Zion, Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Title of today's message. Also the subject of the Davidic covenant, the king. Your king is coming to you. Now, Zechariah is one of the later prophets. He's what we call the post-exile prophet, one of them. Okay, so he, so he is really within the, within the last stretch of prophets in the Old Testament. And it's to him that he sees some specific detail and how that anticipation of the king coming, not the covenant being established, but the king that was promised in the covenant is coming. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now notice verse 10. Notice the, the, the abruptness, the, 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 the total change that we see. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. This is, the, this is God speaking. And the horse from Jerusalem. And the bow of war will be cut off. He's saying that all the, uh, well, the militaries that would be against uh, Israel, it, it's depicted by Ephraim. But it's all, all, of the, all of the nations that were enemies of, of Israel and the horse from Jerusalem. He's talking about military um, resources that a lot of the enemies of Israel had, but very rarely did Israel have, if ever. Israel didn't have chariots, okay? They didn't have horses for the most part, okay? When they borrowed horses from other nations like Egypt, they, had, they went against the will of God for the nation of Israel. In any event, this is the military enemies, the military of the enemy nations being cut off. No more war. The horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. Notice now we have the same king. You see, the Lord, the God in heaven says, I will cut off the chariot. I will, I will make it so that none of the enemies of Israel will ever be able to rise up and try to attack them again, ever. And then, and then we have the, 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 the Messiah, this great king. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea. Notice he has a dominion here. Notice the power and the glory and the authority and the sovereignty. His dominion will be from sea to sea. And again, another way of saying it, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Notice the change. Right, in verse 9, the king is coming, but notice it's, he's humble. He's mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, the donkey was an animal of transportation for the common people. It certainly wouldn't be an animal that the king would, you would expect the king to arrive on. That would be a horse. Okay, that's verse 9. But then in verse 10, we see that this now the same king will have a dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Quite a contrast between verse 9 and verse 10. In verse 9, the king is humble. He's mounted on a donkey. Not only that, but this is talking about the fact that he will ride into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey rather than a powerful horse. All right? Notice that, that, that surprise that this king would come, but he wouldn't be riding on, on a horse. He wouldn't be um, powerful and, and have a military presence. No, he'd be on a humble donkey. And again, the donkey was an animal of transportation for the common people. He was relating to the common people when he came the first time. Because as, we, as, we, as most of us understand, that the mighty people in Jerusalem, King Herod, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, hated him. Right? They wanted nothing to do with him. It was the common people that heard the gospel and believed in Christ. So, so that's the first verse, verse 9. All right, And yet, in the very next verse, this same king we see ruling the entire world. And you have to ask the question, what happened? What changed so that this humble king, who was associating with the common people, now becomes this king with a worldwide dominion, ruling the entire world? Something had to change in a major, major way. How did this come to pass? And perhaps even more importantly, who is this king that would on the one hand be humble 
and associated with the common people, but on the other hand, eventually have a, have a rule of the entire world. The New Testament gives the answers to this. The Old Testament sets it up. By the way, this is not the only prophecy that has this, as it were, split between uh, what we now know is the first coming of Christ and the second coming. But they didn't necessarily understand that in the Old Testament. But you see these amazing contrasts as well. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7 is another example. of Here's a child that will be born. But then he will be called mighty God, king of kings. So so you have again this tremendous contrast. And, and in Micah, we saw the same thing in Micah chapter five. So so it's not just here in Zechariah. I picked this because he specifically talks about the king. And that ties us right in to the Messian. I mean, to the Davidic covenant. The New Testament is where we see that this king is going to come twice. The New Testament reveals this fact that this king it was anticipated all the way back in the book of Genesis. That 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 was the promises made to David. This, this covenant was established. And then it was enlarged and, and, and reconfirmed. And now we see it starting to be fulfilled. But this first coming and it will be completely fulfilled when he comes again. It's the New Testament that lays this out clearly. By the way, it's not our subject. But the New Testament also reveals something else about what's going to happen between the first coming and and the second coming in between. When you think about it, if it's telling you there's going to be a first coming and a second coming, and then it further says that there's going to be a gap of time, then another question would arise, which is what's happening in between. And you see, we also have that revealed to us because it's us. It's the church that is established and becomes the vehicle through which God speaks to the world and, in fact, to the angels. That's not our subject. But what I do want you to see is how this unfolds, how, how, how first you have this line. At first, it seems like it could be anybody who's a descendant of David. And then we find out soon after that that it's one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah. Then we find out that it's going to be a specific family, the family of David. When we get to the New Testament, it's an individual named Jesus Christ. And so what we have is an unfolding. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, first you see that the paper completely folded. Just looks like some descendant of, of, of Abraham. And then you start to see a little bit more. You start to see the tribe of Judah. And then you see a little bit more. You see it's going to be of the line of David. And then, and then by the pro- time we get to the prophet Zechariah, we're starting to see this development where there's a, there's a king, and he's humble, and yet he's also going to have a worldwide dominion. Then we get to the New Testament, and it unfolds completely. We see, oh, okay, so there's going to be a first coming, and we see all about the first coming, how he was born of a woman, born in lowly circumstances. We see that his ministry was uh, somewhat successful among the common people, but completely rejected by the leadership. And then he would ultimately die on a cross, and then be raised from the dead. The full meaning of that not revealed um, really until the epistles of the New Testament. So we start to see this two comings. And then we, then we start to see again what's going to happen in between. So it's a gradual unfolding more and more. It's almost like there, it is like the seed in the ground, which is the seed of Abraham. 
Then it becomes this root of Jesse, as it's talked about. And then and then all of a sudden it blossoms. And then so you start to see the plant forming and you start to see it going in two directions, the first and the second coming. And then you see the flowering of it all when you see in detail who this one is. And then we have, of course, ultimately, we're going to have the complete fulfillment when Christ comes back. King is coming twice. First time. I know you know this, but at the same time, from where we've been, I want you to get a sense of of the new information, of the revelation that the fact that he would come, this king, whom they who was talked about primarily in the Old Testament, about one who would have the throne of David forever, that he would rule the whole world, and yet we find out in the New Testament he'll be born, he will be born, and that wouldn't have been a surprise, but he'd be born of a virgin. And he would die on a cross, die on a cross, and then be raised from the dead. That's the first time. And then there's the second time. Hasn't happened yet. He will come in the clouds of heaven. Now, this is I'm going to show you the total difference between the first and the second time he comes. The first time, he's born. He's a baby. He's a child. He's clearly human. He dies. Second time he comes, he comes on the clouds of heaven. He's not, he doesn't, this isn't another birth. You know, there's some people who think, well, the, this Messiah is going to be born. And then, you know, kind of like what Jesus was. But it's not a birth the second time. The second time he's coming from the clouds of heaven. That's completely different. Birth on earth, coming from the clouds. Not only that, but he'll be coming. He will be riding a horse. He'll be riding a, right, a white horse. First time on a humble donkey. Second time, coming from the clouds of heaven in glory, riding a white horse, defeating with his heavenly armies, the angels, defeat all the nations and receive that kingdom that has been promised all the way back, really, in the book of Genesis. So so two comings, New Testament reveals both of them. First time, dying on a cross. Second time, coming from clouds, the clouds of heaven, riding a white horse with heavenly armies to defeat all the nations and receive his kingdom and rule on David's throne in Jerusalem forever. The story keeps unfolding. The New Testament brings new revelations about this Messiah. Again, the first and second coming being the big one, but also new prophecies about the Messiah that we'll see that next week. We'll see again. I've mentioned this already today, but the New Testament has a lot of prophecy. And again, we tend to think about prophecy in the Old Testament, fulfillment in the New Testament. That's certainly true. But what we what we don't always realize that, yes, fulfillment in the New Testament, but then more prophecies about again what the second coming. And that's in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, but also in the book of Acts, for sure, and in the epistles of Paul and and in the other epistles as well. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, which is really an amazing book because it's not only prophecy, but it's also specific documentation of the events in the future. Like like we learned in the book of Revelation that when he comes, he'll have a thousand year reign on earth before the new Jerusalem comes. That certainly wasn't revealed in the Old Testament as such. Why? Because in the Old Testament, where they do show the king coming in all his glory and having a worldwide dominion, it's really presented like, we'll see this, by the way, on Thursday, when we get there in the book of Isaiah, it's really presented as all happening in one package. 
It's only in the book of Revelation, really, that we find out, no, there's a thousand-year reign, and then something else is going to happen, and then you have the eternal kingdom, right? Heavenly and earthly, symbolized by the new Jerusalem, which is going to be have a heavenly component and an earthly one. All right, so two comings. Story keeps unfolding. The New Testament brings new revelation, new prophecies about this descendant of David. In other words, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in the New Testament has two parts. I'm repeating, but I'm adding information, kind of like the Bible does. Notice this. The the, the first um, part that the New Testament reveals is historical fact. And that the historical facts of the New Testament, again, are in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Those are the historic book. What's already happened? All right. That's in the, the book of the Gospels and the book of Acts. New Testament records the historical fact. The Messiah actually came the first time. Not only that, but finally we see his, we learn his name. His name is Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem raised in Nazareth. This is a partial, this is so important, a partial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because we, because he comes as promised and we now, we have his name revealed and that, that as we're going to see, that he would be uh, presented as a king. So there's a partial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, not a complete one because again, the second part is the New Testament containing prophecies concerning the second coming of the Messiah. At that future event, which hasn't happened yet, when the Messiah returns, Jesus Christ returns, then and only then will the Messiah completely fulfill the Davidic covenant. Okay? So it's so important. If we're going to take the plain meaning of Scripture, if we're going to use a literal approach, a historic approach, to the scriptures, you have to see that this is the case, that there are going to be two, right? I say this because there are, there's a lot of churches and uh, denominations and theologians that won't accept this, that will try to, as, as it's called, spiritualize everything about what we know to be the second coming. There are some who believe that Jesus Christ's second coming occurred when he they don't even call it the second coming, but his worldwide dominion when he ascended into heaven. You see, but here's the problem with that. There's the Davidic throne is not in heaven. That's not David's throne. That's God's throne. David's throne will be on earth. And so, again, that's what I mean. If you take it literally, if you say, I, I believe that the promises that God made were literal. The promises he made to Abraham, promises he made to David. Not only that, but how it's laid out in the New Testament. You know, if you take it literally, it's absolutely clear that there's a second coming that's going to happen in the future. I mean, Jesus talks about it and he, and he talks about what's going to happen at that time in detail. Right. Not only that, but the prophecy of like, for example, of, of Daniel is very specific about things that's going to happen. So you can't take the Bible literally and not realize that there's a second coming that's going to be in the future. But it's also going to be the king fulfilling the Davidic covenant. All right, so let's begin now in the New Testament. Please turn to Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Matthew 21, verse 1. 
Matthew, from the very first verse, talks about the fact that his gospel is a partial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. From the very first verse. Partial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. By the time we get to chapter 21, now we see history being made. If I could put it that way. History being made. This actually happened 2,000 years ago. Matthew 21, verse 1. When they, these are the disciples in Jesus, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Is this starting to sound familiar? Donkey, the colt? I hope so. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. We know who this prophet is. Who's this prophet? Zechariah. Absolutely. Zechariah. This took place to fulfill. Notice the language. To fulfill. This is a fulfillment of something that the prophet Zechariah prophesied concerning the descendant of David. Some of it was fulfilled. Here, here what's happening is Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's actually the king. Some would recognize that, by the way, the common people. Okay, Verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. I want you to picture that and ask yourself a question. Is this even the attendance of this king? Were they doing the things that you would expect if they were preparing the king to come in and present himself to the city of Jerusalem? Would anyone ever imagine it would be a it would be a bunch of coats that were being worn by by the folks from from Galilee that were being laid on a colt? Colt, by the way, is a much smaller animal than a horse. You know, this is definitely not at all what people would have expected. But it is what Zechariah said would happen. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of their crowd spread their coats in the row. What's happening? They, they, they now recognize, despite the, what they're seeing with their eyes, not matching their expectations. Now they're saying, hey, wait a minute. This is how he's being presented. He's, his, his very disciples are using their coats. We're going to do the same thing. In a way, it's an expression of faith, an expression of the fact that they, too, recognize that Jesus is the king. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, shouting what? Hosanna to the son of David. I hope that has a lot of meaning. Why? Because they're saying that when we say the son of David, what he's talking about, what the crowds are talking about is the fact that the, the promises that were made to David are being fulfilled. Right. This is the one. This is the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. Hosanna 
in the highest. So these common people, the crowds, they recognize that he's the son of David. By the way, notice specifically the son of David here, right? Not, in other words, not the son of God, right? They're focusing on the Messiah, the promises made to David. The king is coming. But we see verse verses four to five tell us the first part of Zechariah's prophecy. Remember, we just saw it in Zechariah 9, 9. Jesus fulfilled it when he rode a donkey to Jerusalem a few days before his death on the cross. That's verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9. But I want you to notice something. Matthew doesn't mention verse 10. He just brings verse 9. This is exactly the same as when Jesus went to the to the synagogue in Nazareth and he got up and they had said, hey, do a reading for us. And he read from Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3, only he stopped. He didn't complete even those first three verses. He stopped right in the middle. This is very, very significant. Matthew does the same thing. He goes to Zechariah. He cites verse 9, which is the first half of the prophecy of the king. He doesn't mention verse 10 because that was not fulfilled when Jesus came and and, and went into Jerusalem. All right. So that won't be fulfilled, by the way, again, until Jesus returns to rule at a time in the future, even today, in a time that nobody knows, only the Father knows. So don't, don't buy the people that think that they can predict when the second coming is going to happen. They can't. I mean, I mean, the Father says it. Jesus says it. Jesus said, listen, I'm coming at a time you don't expect. See, so this is a time only the Father knows. Could be. Well, it can't be next week. It's got to be at least seven years from now, all right, because we have that seven-year period that Daniel prophesied that, again, the Gospels talk about, about the fact that there would be the, the worst time on earth, that there would be, a, particularly the second three and a half years, the Great Tribulation. That has to happen first. But, um, by the way, what we know is that there is an event, not, not revealed even in the Gospels, an event that happens that could happen tonight. And of course, that's the rapture of the church in First Thessalonians. So and, and even though that's not going to happen again, the, the remarkable thing I find remarkable is that the common people, the crowd, recognize Jesus as the son of David, recognize that even though that he's not going to completely fulfill the promises made to David, he's nevertheless his identity. This is the son of David that was promised is Jesus. That's rather significant, by the way. We know it now. But if you think about it, to have all these hundreds of years of prophecies and anticipation and disappointment, and then to finally learn, hey, wait a minute, this this individual, this one named Jesus, born in Bethlehem, you know, raised in Nazareth, this one who's been doing miracles, who as we see already has been rejected by the Pharisees who want to kill him. Now we, we have the one, we have his name, we've seen him. That's, that's highly significant and amazing, actually, from the perspective of the, of the nation of Israel leading up to that time. All right, let's go now to the Gospel of Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. I have my Christmas tie on this morning. I don't know if you can see that. It's not just easily recognized. There's the star in the home. That's when you decide to pick up this. Any event... Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, records the events 
around the time and including the time when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But now, but in this particular passage, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 33, this is the start of things when it comes to the family that Jesus would be born into. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, by the way, you say sixth month of what? That would be the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth would, of course, carrying John the Baptist. Okay, the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now you're talking about talking about amazing heavenly things. An angel is now coming, sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Notice the specific detail. All right, we know we know the particular city now, or town really, uh, Nazareth. We know that his mother will be a virgin, which again is an astounding thing. Although, Book of Isaiah really already revealed, right? Probably forgotten by ninety-nine percent of the people that were alive when Jesus was born. But he would be born of a virgin, a miraculous thing. An angel's coming, born of a virgin. We now know the name. Of, of the one who was betrothed, you know, engaged to Mary, Joseph, of the descendants of David. And that's, of course, really important, right? Because if there's going to, if God, if the Lord promised that a descendant of David would sit on his throne, then whoever this one is has to be the descendants of David. It's so critical. By the way, both Mary and Joseph were of the line of David. And, and this isn't our subject today, but when you talk about seed, you're talking about physical birth along the line of other physical births. In other words, you know, the, the, and that had to be the mother, especially if it's a miraculous birth and it's just the mother. Okay. On the other hand, you also had the legal part of who can be king, and that came through the father. So it's so it's amazing when you and by the way, we know that for a fact. Because of the genealogies, which are in the gospel of Matthew, that's Joseph's genealogy. Well, ultimately, it's Jesus, but I mean, it's, it goes through Joseph. And then Luke's goes through Mary. It's remarkable. It's remarkable because it's, it's everything that you would ever want. If you were a Jew, wondering, could this be the Messiah? Right? The, the greatest, most important thing, the first thing is, well, is he a descendant of David? Clearly documented, again, in the New Testament, that Jesus is a descendant of David. So he qualifies. By the way, he's going to qualify on every particular that the Old Testament laid out as requirements for the Messiah. I'll say this as well. Many of you may have, 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 have had this taught to you before. But the fact of the matter is, is that while we have the records of Jesus' genealogy, the genealogies of the Jewish people were, were re- resided in the temple. And when the temple and the city of Jerusalem was wiped out in 70 AD, so were all those records. What am I saying? I'm saying that nobody, no Jew since 70 AD could prove that he was a descendant of David. Let me say that again. No Jew since 70 AD could prove that he was a descendant of David. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that nobody could claim to be the Messiah after 70 AD. That's amazing when you think about it. It's amazing. You know why? Because the Jewish people today 
who don't believe in Jesus, many of them do believe in the Messiah, and they're still looking for him to come, not realizing the fact that we won't know if that's the one anymore because we don't have the records to show whether or not he's a descendant of David. Again, you know, if, 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 if any Jewish person was true to their own scriptures, they would understand that if the Messiah hasn't come yet, he's not going to come. And therefore, they should be looking for this person to have already come. All right. And of course, that person is Jesus. And any 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 Jewish person who takes a honest look at the scriptures about the Messiah can now only come to the conclusion that their Messiah is Jesus. All right. So again, let's look. Let's begin again. Luke chapter one, verse 26. I'm looking at my phone because that clock's broken. and I don't want to go over today. It's 1042 for those of you that are falling asleep and want to know how much longer this is. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he This is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. He said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Imagine the really shock of it all for Mary. Again, really kind of a common, almost peasant girl, maybe middle class. We don't know, but certainly never expected an angel to visit. Certainly never expected when the angel did come that he would bring the greetings from the Lord, that she would be a favored one, a chosen one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. I think we all would do that. We had an angel come and said, use your name. Greetings, Margie King, favored one. The Lord is with you. You Now, that'd be quite a morning. You know, you might say, well, I haven't had my coffee yet. Maybe this is just a vision. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering What kind of salutation this was? The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. This is the moment that it's revealed, at least to Mary, his mother, that that her son is the promised Messiah and his name will be Jesus. Verse 32. By the way, I just want to say right now that he's born here. The, this is the, the fact that he would be human as well as God. We'll see that in the very next verse, that he's also God. Okay. Again, 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will be great, he will be God, and he will be born, so he will be human, and the Lord will give him, a God-man, the throne of his father David, David, 
Now we see that, wait a minute, we're talking about the throne of David. Hopefully that clicks. I think I'm sure it did for Mary and said, wait a minute, this is a fulfillment of the, of the promise that was made to David, the Davidic covenant. Here it is. The Lord will give this one. Here it is. This person, Jesus of Nazareth, the throne of his father, David. And here we go. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. What do we have here? We have a throne. We have a house and we have a kingdom. Does that sound familiar to anybody? A throne, a kingdom, and a house. I said it backwards from what the, that's the Davidic covenant, right? The Davidic covenant, a house, right? A, a kingdom and a throne. So in other words, the angel Gabriel instructs Mary to name her son Jesus. In other words, now, right at that moment, the identity of the Messiah is finally revealed. This child named Jesus is the Messiah. This child is born. That means he's human. Yet he's also called the son of the most high, God in the flesh. And the Lord God, think of it, will give this baby, Jesus, born of a virgin, the throne of his father, David. Finally, the promises in 2 Samuel made to David are coming to pass. But as we know, it's going to be a partial fulfillment. I want you to notice that that actually the angel Gabriel issues a prophecy that still hasn't occurred yet. Okay. Yes, he's the son of the Most High. Notice verse 32. That's true. That's a fact. But the Lord giving him the throne of his father, David, that hasn't happened. That didn't happen when Jesus came the first time. He wasn't. He didn't have the throne of his father, David. He didn't reign over the house of Jacob. That's the whole nation of Israel. Certainly not forever. Not at all. And his kingdom will have no end. The kingdom hasn't been set up on earth. So that hasn't happened yet. But I keep emphasizing partial fulfillment, partial fulfillment. He will be human. He will be God. And the Lord God will give this baby Jesus the throne of his father, David. Joseph, line of David. Mary, line of David. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This is an exact restatement of the Davidic covenant. I am sure Mary recognized that. I am sure she understood at that moment who this baby was that was going to be in her womb, that this is the promised Messiah. Because because, because you couldn't miss it. If you knew the scriptures, if you knew 2 Samuel, and by the way, there's a lot of evidence that both Mary's side of the family, particularly, but also Joseph, knew the scriptures. That they, that, that, that if you go back and you read, you'll see that they were they were people who were, who were in, in terms of the law, righteous. And they were anticipating the Savior. So they knew what the Davidic covenant really said. And wow, to have this angel come, angel, saying you'll have a baby even though you're a virgin, and then saying that this baby will have the throne of David, you reign over the house of Jacob forever, his kingdom will have no end. The Davidic covenant will be fulfilled through him. Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, Son of the Most High is the descendant that the Lord promised to David. All right. By the way, that's the seed of Abraham. We have the nation here, the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David. And now we see that this Davidic covenant is partially fulfilled by the birth of Jesus. At at his birth, that's when the Davidic covenant was partially fulfilled. 
But what Mary didn't know that day and what the New Testament subsequently reveals is that the promises of the covenant would not be fulfilled in her lifetime. I mean, that she must have thought they would have been. Right. Why would an angel come and tell her that this son of yours will 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 have the throne of your father, David, reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end? must be that this one that I'm giving birth to, at some point, these great events are going to happen. Maybe Mary was thinking, I'm going to live to see all of this, right? But she, what she couldn't know, and then the New Testament subsequently reveals, is that these promises made to David wouldn't be fulfilled in her lifetime. Why? Because first her son would die for the sins of the world. A sword will pierce her heart. That was told to her when she brought Jesus to the temple for his dedication. Her son would die for the sins of the world, and yet he'd be raised from the dead. We now know this now. And be seated at the right hand of his heavenly father. Right? Not seated on the throne of David here on earth. Seated at the right hand of his heavenly father. So as it were, there's a postponement of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. How did it happen? Well, because this, this, this one, this Messiah, died on the cross, was buried, raised from the dead. Now, at that point, and this is true, the disciples said, well, surely now, now that he's been raised from the dead, he is definitely going to usher in the kingdom now. After all, he's resurrected. He has a resurrection body. No one's going to mess with him. He's going he's gonna to come right now. The problem was they didn't recognize that, that, the, that the people, the nation, had to be ready for him. That's not going to happen until they go through the great tribulation period. Then finally they'll be humbled and they'll be ready to realize what they never did, what, what, what John the Baptist called them to do, what Jesus called them to do, which is one word, repent, turn around, re- realize that you're going in the wrong direction with your understanding of history, your understanding of what the Lord wants you to do, your understanding of who the Messiah. That's not going to happen until after the great tribulation when they're finally humbled and ready to, re- to receive him. Now he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we're waiting, we're waiting, and we're waiting. He's there today. But he will return. And then he will fulfill all the promises God made to David. Every one of them. This is what I mean. If you take the Bible literally, and you, and, you, and you believe who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah and the king. And you also realize that he died and was raised. And then he's at the right hand of the father on, on a heavenly throne. Yet you take the Bible literally. He has to come back to earth because it's on earth that the promises that David will be fulfilled. Thrown in Jerusalem, not in heaven. It's interesting that that all the descriptions of Jesus in the throne of heaven not once is that throne identified with David, the one in heaven. It's on earth. So, so, so that something has to now still happen. And, of course, the, what that has to be is the Lord coming back. Messiah is coming back, and he will. And that's when he'll fulfill all the promises that God made to David. All the, all the promises that we've seen, the, the house and the throne and the kingdom, all the promises that were restated, in the Psalms and the prophets, it is all going to come to pass. Just not yet. All right, finally, let's let's go forward. Let's leave the Gospels now 
And let's go to the book of Acts for one passage. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. In the book of Acts, Jesus is, is raised from the dead. In the chapter 1 of the book of Acts, he's with his disciples. And they, you know what they ask him? He's resurrected from the dead. He has had a 40-day ministry. You know what they ask him? Is this the time when you're going to establish the kingdom? See, they figured surely after he was raised from the dead, now it would happen. And he would say, it's not for you to know what time. It's the time that the Father will establish. And, and, and then what happens? He, he goes up in a cloud out of their sight. They're wait, wait, wait. There's the Messiah. The king. Come on back down. What are you doing going up there? Right? So that, that must have been a shock as well. But then, of course, the angel says, what does the angel say? Don't worry. This one, this Jesus, this Messiah who you've seen going up in the cloud today, he will return the same way he went up. Of course, coming down on the clouds of heaven. Again, you cannot take the Bible literally and not believe that there will be a literal second coming when Jesus, the Messiah, will come down from heaven and come back to earth. Now, let's just see that now we're going to see the great day of Pentecost. Peter and the apostles and, and the disciples, they were in hiding. And they, then the Holy Spirit came upon them in a miraculous way for that first time. Right. The tongue. Don't look for tongues of fire hitting your head anytime soon, because that was a one time event so that everyone would understand what had just happened. That the Holy Spirit had descended upon the disciples. Then immediately strengthened, revived. Bold, they come and they preach the gospel. They preach about Jesus to the assembled crowd who come from all over the known world to, to the feast of Pentecost. Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you, Israel. He came to Israel first by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. These miracles and wonders and signs were intended to help them believe that this, in fact, was the Messiah. But what happened? Verse 23, this man, this Jesus, a man attested by God with miracles and wonders, as you know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's something, because I want you to think about God having a predetermined plan. He's up in heaven. He has a predetermined plan. He has all foreknowledge. Now, the people on earth don't, right? So, so and, and we sometimes forget this. You know, you want to say, you know, who was it that put Jesus on the cross? Now, a lot of people say, well, that's that's got to be the Jews. Other people will say, no, it's the Romans. They did it. Then, then the really spiritual ones say, we all did it. You ever hear that? That's not true. You know who did it? God the Father did it. Notice, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Then you, you the Jewish people, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Notice, this is amazing. You nailed him to the cross, but how? By the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
But God raised him up again. Notice, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now let's see who Peter now is going to cite. Who? For David. Did I just get to put that up? You guys in Acts chapter 2? You guys reading along with me? You know what verse we're in? 25. For David says of him. You know what that tells us right now? Now he's about to quote a psalm. And it was written by David. But he's now, now, now Peter is saying, this psalm I'm about to read to you, David was actually speaking of Jesus when he wrote this. What does that tell you? It tells you that Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm written by David talking about the Messiah. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. (laughs) Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, he says, in verse 27, well, actually in verse 26, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Why? My flesh will also live in hope as the resurrection. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. He wasn't going to stay in that in the tomb very long. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. Jesus brings eternal life to whosoever believes in him. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's him up in heaven right now in the presence of the Father. Okay, back to earth. Brethren, verse 29. I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, the king, David, the one to whom the promises were made, the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What does that tell us? It tells us David was not talking about himself when he said the things that he said. He was talking about somebody else. And so because he was a prophet, David was a prophet, and he knew God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And what's that? What do we call that, that God swore with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne? The Davidic covenant, right. He's quoting here. Um, Psalm 132, referring back to 2 Samuel 7, he says, God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Now, clearly, he's, what's happening now is Peter is also tying in the Davidic, the Davidic promises to Jesus, to this assembled crowd who, had, who probably had no idea until he said these things. Verse 31, he looked ahead, David, and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. When the Lord gave this psalm for David to write, I wonder if he realized that he was writing something that would would apply to the resurrection of the Messiah. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. See, all the people that were with Peter that day were eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this 
which you both see and hear. The Holy Spirit was the one that, that was speaking through the apostles. Notice, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord God, the Father said to my Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand. In other words, the son of David is also David's Lord, the King of Kings. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a prophecy. That hasn't happened yet. That's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes back. Holding Psalm 110. What does that tell you? Therefore, Psalm 110 has to be a messianic psalm. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord. That's his deity and Christ, the Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So now we see that the in its historic fact now that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, and, and ascend into heaven and now be seated at the right hand of the Father. But the Lord revealed that to the Jewish people through the, the, the Apostle Peter um, on the day of Pentecost, which was, was when the Holy Spirit first came upon the disciples, and they spoke boldly, and they, and they revealed new things to the masses, to the people that were assembled, assembled into Jerusalem. And by the way, I'll note that the message first went, to the nation of Israel. Why? Because the nation of Israel was the one who was to receive the promises of God that were given to David and to Abraham. All right. That means that more will be revealed in the New Testament because we might be wondering at this point, where are we? Right. How about the Gentiles? Well, we, you know, we know that, that that will be covered later on. All right. So now we're going to next time we're going to look at part two of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. When it will, when when it will, the, the New Testament will speak of the future fulfillment. When it will be complete, all the promises will be literally fulfilled when the Messiah comes back. We're going to go to the Gospels again because they also contain prophecy, many prophecies of the second coming of Christ. All right, let's close in prayer now and get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the incredible, incredible truths in your word concerning this king, the son of David. We thank you, Father, that this is this is something that is unfolded in the scriptures all the way back in the book of Genesis, all the way through to today, all the way through to what is prophesied in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament uh, concerning the fact that this king who is at your right hand will come back on the clouds of heaven to earth and establish his throne, throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And so, Father, now we're going to turn our attention to what happened the first time you came. And we we understand, Father, now through the eyes of the scriptures that, that he died on the cross for us. And every time we get together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're bringing that into remembrance and proclaiming it. We ask now, Father, that this would be the time and that we would understand that and see it anew as we once again take the bread and the cup. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, if you would at this time, please prepare the elements that are in front of you.
I always have trouble with this. Today, Jack gave me three. I think he knows that maybe if I miss the first one, I'll have another one. And I apologize to anybody uh, on Skype this morning who perhaps um, didn't realize that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper and perhaps um, you know don't have a chance to have the elements in front of you. You know, what we're doing, what we're really doing is we're proclaiming the death of Christ. You can do that in your heart, um, even without the elements. Now, this isn't the Catholic Church, right, where we, we believe that there's something supernatural about the elements themselves. They're there as, an, as a teaching aid, right? They're there to, for us to recognize, once again, the meaning that the bread is really the body of Christ that was sacrificed for us on the cross. The blood is the blood of Christ, which meant that he, was, he died on the cross, and it's by his blood that we are redeemed. It's like the blood of the ancient sacrifices in the temple never could really take away sin. But Jesus' one perfect sacrifice on the cross did. All right. You know, in Luke chapter 24, we didn't go there today, but Jesus uh, told his disciples right before he would be ascend into heaven, he said, listen. All the things that were written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus Christ opened their minds to understand that the Old Testament scriptures predicted that the Messiah would suffer and he would rise again from the dead. And every time, and now, celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're here to proclaim his death until he comes again. And the New Testament scriptures in particular reveal why Why did the Messiah have to die? We know that he had to from reading today in the book of Acts, where it says this was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that he would die. Why? Well, Peter tells us why. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, he says, You've been called, church believers, for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow In his steps, who committed no sin, the spotless lamb, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's a quotation of Isaiah 53, by the way. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body. On the cross. Why did he have to die? Why did the Messiah, the King, have to go to the cross and die so that he would bear our sins in his body on the cross? That's what we proclaim when we proclaim the death of Jesus. You see, proclaiming means that that we also are messengers. And in the very act of our celebrating the Lord's Supper, really in the very act of eating the bread and drinking the cup, we're proclaiming the fact 
that, yes, he died on the cross, but we're proclaiming why he died, that he bore our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You think about that. Now, we, we, we often think about, I hope we do, the fact that by Jesus' death on the cross, we're redeemed, that he's the perfect sacrifice. He satisfied God on behalf of the entire human race. That because of his, his blood, our sins are forgiven. But I also, I want you to listen to what else Peter has to say. I repeated it once, I'm going to say it again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Yes, this is something that occurred, as we say, in position that we know when Christ died on the cross, he died to sin and we died with him. And it's true that we are now seen as righteous in God's eyes. But you know what also is, is true? That the, that the Lord wants us to display that, to proclaim this in our lives now. So that, so that dying to sin is not just a truth, but also something that we understand makes us different by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That where people recognize that we have had victory over the bondage of sin, and to live accordingly. And yes, we have been declared righteous by God. We never need fear that we're going to be condemned. Let's live that way. Let's, let's allow the Spirit to change our hearts, to put aside the old man, and have our minds renewed and put on the new man. For by his wounds you were healed. This is what we bring to remembrance in the bread and in the cup. By his wounds his body dying, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. You see, his death was that so that we would return. But who do we return to? The shepherd. What does the shepherd do? Cares for the flock, leads the flock out of trouble. That means that right now in our daily lives, he's our leader. In the spiritual life, he leads us out of trouble, right? He refreshes our soul, according to Psalm 23. He leads us in the paths of righteousness and the guardian of our souls. He's the one who protects our souls. Think about that. How? Through the word of God, through the ministry of the spirit, and through Jesus Christ advocating for us at the right hand of the Father. This is what it means to bring into remembrance the death of the Lord and proclaim it. He was perfect. He became the perfect sin offering. So that we who had been sinners dead in our sins might become the very righteousness of God in Christ. So that's what we do when we when we take the broken bread and eat it. We just remember once again, this is his body, meaning not literally, but that it's a reminder of the fact that he bore on in his body our sins on the cross. And we take the cup and remember that his blood was poured out to death for, for many for the forgiveness of sins. You have been forgiven of all your sins, my God. By the way, the scriptures say, since you have been forgiven, you should now also, in gratitude, forgive others. This is what we do when we break, when we break the bread and drink the cup. This is what we proclaim. We proclaim what his death has accomplished once for all on the cross, but then understanding the freedom that we can now live in, 
lining up with the fact that we have died to sin and that we have been declared righteous. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all the days that you leave us here on earth, you know, we have the privilege of standing, standing in your righteousness, of, of understanding that the bondage of sin has been broken understanding that we owe it all to the death of your son on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so, Father, we know that you ask us when we gather together to eat the bread and to drink the cup to to bring into remembrance the fact that his death brought life and that and it broke us, broke us free from the bondage of sin and, and allowed you to declare us righteous in your eyes. So, Father, we ask that we would always take opportunities to reflect on this, on what Jesus accomplished for us, and reflect on the fact that you have given us opportunities now to give others a reason for the hope that is in our hearts. And we just ask, Father, that we would cooperate in the same way that the prophets cooperated with the message you wanted them to bring, that we would do the same thing by proclaiming the gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so um, once again, I, I mentioned it in the prayer this morning. I think most of you know, but Lorraine Marlier died on Wednesday. She's now with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But her family, those who loved her, who knew her, us, are still grieving her loss. It, it, it will be a, a, a thing that particularly Lorraine's daughter, Lisa, will be wrestling with and coming to terms with for a while. So we ask for her prayer. We ask you to pray for her. Um, some of you have asked the question, at this time, there are no plans yet for a service, okay, to celebrate her life. All right, we will, we're giving Lisa the time to grieve and then to see what she wants to do. So as more information about that uh, comes available, I obviously pass it along. And again, once again, um, Peter and Ruth Morrison, you know, Ruth's, Ruth's health is in a precarious place. And, and Peter has, has decided that he wants to be with her all the way, no matter where it leads. And that's a that's a difficult thing. And so we pray, we pray for both of them and ask that the Lord would strengthen them and and give them grace and to have somehow opportunities to um Reflect on the Lord's love for them and on their love for each other. We will have our Bible study, God willing, 
face-to-face also this Thursday, December 16th. We'll continue to study the prophet Isaiah. As usual, we'll also be on Skype. And uh, especially on the Lord's Supper days, we want to make sure that we, again, have reconfirmed to us in our hearts the simplicity of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was born of a woman, Mary, and a virgin, and that he did live, and he, he did have a ministry to declare and prove that he was God in the flesh and the promised Messiah, and that reflecting on the fact and telling others that he died on the cross so that he could bear our sins and everybody's sins, and he was buried and on the third day, he did was raised from the dead by his father so that he could once again and now and forever demonstrate that eternal life. And now we have an opportunity to preach the words of eternal life that Jesus gave to us and that, that the Bible tells us. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Whoever believes in Jesus as their Savior will never perish but have eternal life. Keep that close in your hearts, that truth. All right. Father, we thank you for this service today and ask that you uh, look after us and have the Spirit inspire our hearts through the the word that we've received today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, with that, you're dismissed. um, Hope you have a time of reflection today, time to uh, also uh, re-engage, have uh, time to rest up. You know, another week is coming when we have to face whatever it is we face. We don't know, right? So... Every day he gives us his precious. Okay.